0: And this is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Scott Kim, sitting in for Katherine Cruz. Maui Mayor Michael Victorino has had his hands full over the past two years trying to steer the island through a pandemic and the worst economic downturn in decades. Now, as the county emerges from the height of the pandemic, Victorino's administration is turning to the future and how to guide Maui through a possible second term. Mayor Victorino joins us now on The Conversation. Mayor, thanks so much for being with us.
1: Mahalo, Scott.
0: Now, it's just been a few weeks since COVID restrictions were lifted in Hawaii, and now we're seeing a rise in cases again, both worldwide and closer to home. How concerned are you about the situation right now, especially with tourists returning? And do you see the possibility that restrictions such as mask mandates may once again be necessary?
1: Well, I'll take that question in two parts. First of all, Yes, we are seeing rising numbers in the Far East and in the northeastern part of the United States, Europe. I believe uh, Great Britain has had a big outbreak, France, and many of the Asian countries are having challenges. The BA2 variant, which is an offshoot of the Omicron, is more contagious, and we're seeing that even here in Hawaii. And the good news, on the other hand, we're not seeing our hospital or our medical facilities being taxed. But we're still too early into this cycle, if you want to use, to understand the total results that we may get as this progresses. We were warned that by late April early May, we may see another surge. I'm praying that that doesn't happen. All of us don't need to go back to wearing masks, physical distancing, staying home. We don't want that. However, we all understand, too, that this variant, we've learned to live with it. We're not learning to manage it. And the way, the best way you can manage this COVID-19 variant or any of the variants that may occur is getting vaccinated. You know, that's the first recommendation most doctors and most medical people will tell you. Stay healthy, eat healthy. And finally, you know, good hygiene. The hygiene part is something we are so lackadaisical on, but good hygiene. You start wearing masks to protect yourself. I can be honest, at my age bracket, I do wear masks out to most events. Once I get there and I see what's going on, I may take it off. Look, your mayor, Mayor Rick and I wish him well. Hope he gets back to work real soon. Has contracted COVID-19. I did it earlier this year. Um, uh, mayor Roth did it late. Got COVID late last year. So we're not immune to it. And we, for me, I was had my full vaccination series up to date. So it happens. So being concerned and mindful is one thing. But you've got to also shift your attention to where we want to go. The opening up of Maui, not just to our visitor industry, because we're working hard with our Maui Nui plan. We have the county council had their Teak plan. So now we're going to sit down and start putting these plans together because everyone has some great ideas on how to better balance the uh, hospitality industry. Our islands are our homes, so we welcome our visitor or our guests with hospitality. We want to make sure that the hospitality industry really radiates that. But we expect now our visitors to be better educated and understand the protocols and the safety that it takes when they're here on the islands, not trekking into areas where you're not supposed to private land, or more importantly, making sure what you do, you keep yourself safe and others around you safe. Uh, so this is important. The health issue as far as if they're coming with COVID or not, well, it's in our community, so I don't think it's gonna change much. But we do find once in a while visitors still testing positive, I and quarantine in their room for five days. So it does happen even here, but very infrequent from what I've read, read my reports. So I'm not concerned so much about what may come. I'm concerned is where we want to go where we need to go, diversifying our economy, as you mentioned earlier. We're looking at agriculture. We're looking at wellness. Now, if we want to be a wellness center in the state, we should not be sick with COVID-19, right? So we've got to work hard to teach our people how to stay safe, how to stay healthy, and how to provide those services. Like for us now, we're trying to get our high schools to have CNA uh, certified nursing uh, programs in high school, so they have a career path to go to UHMC here, and after that, go on, and we have jobs right here in Maui. Because we always need CNAs, we need registered nurses, we need all of these uh, technicians and others. And it's so wonderful when you can get local people to get educated for those jobs and stay here and raise their families here. It's a win-win for all of us.
0: Right. And, and during the height of the pandemic, Maui's unemployment rate rose to 35 percent, one of the highest in the nation. So you think that was kind of a turning point that really highlighted for you and, and other officials how important it was to diversify the economy, make it not quite so tourism dependent?
1: Absolutely. And we've had downturns, 9-11. We had a downturn in 2007, and 9 We've seen this come and go. We are susceptible because we depend too much on one industry. Yet, I will say this. The hospitality industry is our cornerstone. That's our economic engine. But we can add others around it so that we have more stability when and if it comes again. And it's probably more when it comes again, not if. We'll be more prepared that we'll have areas where wellness, many people still, those people will still be coming in. Technology, we have boundless uh, uh, borders for people to make and sell their products right here from us. They don't have to have somebody come in and see it or look at it or touch it. They can do it on uh, uh, virtually and order what they want. One of the other things that someone has brought to me is taking our local products and once a week, uh, what I've been told, once a week, a ship from China comes in and it brings in all these goods. And then once those goods are all offloaded, Whatever it is to go back to the Far East to China, you can load it on there. It goes uh, goes back many times more than one third empty, you know. You know, it's really empty. And so this gentleman came to me and proposed an opportunity we can use agriculture and as well as product. You could sell the products, load it in the, on a container, ship it on that ship. It's half the cost because it's returning. The the main cost is when it comes here. So, you know, just using some quick math, let's say the ship has to spend $10,000 to come to Hawaii. Well, it's got to turn around and go back. it already can to go back for half the price because already paid most of the cost coming. Now the return is to start up again. And so I know even truckers and other trains uh, uh, do that. They try to make sure that when they return, because they've got to go back, they have something in there that they kind of offset some of the expense of when they freight whatever into whatever location you're talking about. So let's say China. So we could have products that you can sell there, load them up, ship it over there, they got it. And so there's many methodologies that we are looking at to be creative in how we do business right here in the United States because we cannot bring everybody here. We cannot build big factories. We don't want to build big factories. We rather be able to produce products and ship it out and one of our our biggest expenses is shipping you know we got to ship products in that's why locally grown locally developed products is really what we're pushing also so we have less cost there also so we're we're feeling really good about what we're moving into and where we're heading
0: Climate change is another issue on which your administration has focused. It seems like every day we're getting more evidence of how climate change is altering weather patterns, disrupting communities on a very concrete level. And indeed, parts of Maui are now under extreme drought and a federal disaster area has been declared. Uh, what sorts of your measures will your administration pursue if you're elected to a second term?
1: Well, one of the things we're really going to be focusing on is not only managing retreat but green infrastructure. We're going to build what's going to last for the next 50 to 100 years because many of our systems have reached a lifespan of 40 to 50 years. So it's now incumbent on us to go do that. Uh, But making sure when we move, we move in a systematic way where we don't disrupt whatever exists there, but making sure that nothing else is built because sea level rise is coming. We know it's a fact now. To what degree is the only question But it is coming so we have to manage where we go what we build new first of all and anything that exists out there how can we either keep it or let it you know basically demolish it and move it inland Uh, that's another option we've been considering you know putting money aside so that we can demolish a building and build a new building and all those occupants can go back into that building if that happens because right now we have a few out in kahana in the Pili area, which is really having challenges, uh, we're looking at putting uh, the groins, the uh, with the tea groins, which we have found that's very effective to slow down erosion. But sea level rise is happening, and the challenge we face, island communities like us, have very little impact, but we have the most adverse impact because we are hit first.
0: Okay, great. Thank you so much, Mayor. We've been speaking with Maui Mayor Michael Victorino. Mayor, thanks for spending time with us.
1: Thank you, Scott. To everyone out there, mahalo. Aloha.
0: And Mayor Michael Victorino joined us by phone from Maui County this morning. This is the conversation on statewide member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz.
1: Unihoa, Olehua,
0: Onihao, Okawa, Oa, O Moloka, O Lana, O we have a story about national park women coming up later in the show. So for today's backyard quiz, we're testing your knowledge of a park in our state. The Hawaii Volcanoes National Park on Hawaii Island was established on August 1, 1916, and originally included Haleakalā National Park. The 300,000-plus-acre preserve encompasses two active volcanoes, Kilauea and Mauna Loa. In addition to being a popular tourist attraction, the park provides scientists with insight into the development of the Hawaiian Islands and access to volcanism. Chain of Craters Road is the main thoroughfare that runs through the park. It starts at the Kilauea Visitor Center, winds past incredible natural formations like Halemaumau Crater and Thurston Lava Tube, and ends at a very popular coastal attraction. So for today's quiz, do you know the name of this coastal landmark at the end of Chain of Craters Road? Call 808-941-3689 or 877 877- 9413689 if you know the answer the first one to get it right gets our reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right
2: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to strengthening family relationships, such as parents and children together. NareedHawaii.com
0: And retailers across the country have been reporting a baby formula shortage, and it's not just because of supply chain issues. The state health department administers the federal WIC program, that's short for the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children. Individuals can use the public benefits to buy food products like milk and eggs and formula. Lori Lynn Salamanca is a public health nutritionist with the office. She spoke with HPR's Jason Ubai about the shortage prior to the the
3: recall, there was also, there was already a supply chain issue that was causing certain formulas to not be on the shelves and harder to, to buy. Then the formula from um, Abbott who makes Similac and other, you know, Similac brands, that really kind of caused a, a bigger pinch for our households. What happened was that One of their facilities was actually shut down as a result of the FDA investigation. Um, So that was the one in Sturgis, Michigan. And so they have a total of three facilities in the US. And so they were left with two. We were told that they were ramping up, even though they were ramping up production at those two facilities and also using um, products manufactured in Ireland, uh, at their Ireland facility, it it seems like it's just not keeping up with with uh, the demand. Um, So it's been it's definitely been a struggle and we've been able to make some adjustments and allowances so that families have more choices when they go to the store.
2: Can you explain that a bit? I guess what what exactly is the state doing to kind of address this shortage?
3: Yeah, so it's it's I mean, with supply, it's definitely um, It's difficult to predict, you know, what's going to be on the shelves. Uh, We can we talk to our vendors and we have an idea of what stock they have. But depending on the day, right, customers are going in, they're purchasing. um, So it's hard to to really know exactly how much is there. So to make it helpful and easy for our families, we've been able to um, give them flexibility so that when they get to the store, there's a list of alternatives or what we call substitute substitutes Um, so that when they get to the store, depending on what's on the shelf, they would be able to pick up anything that's on that list. Um, So one example is that, uh, you know, the powdered formulas out of that Sturgis, Michigan facility was really the main main thing that were were impacted, not so much the liquids. Um, So for our household or for our babies who are on, for example, simulac advance if they can't find simulac advance in the can size that we usually issue to 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 them. We have a list saying you can pick up um, perhaps Enfamil infant, infant in, you know, whatever size can. Um, we've also allowed for larger size cans of the simulac advance, which normally we, we we're not allowed to. Um, so, it's whatever they can find at the store. Um, there's still a challenge because not all stores sources all those different brands. So there's still um, there's still that kind of shopping around, going from store to store to see who has it.
2: Now, from a public health standpoint, I understand that breast milk is preferred. Uh, but what are some reasons why a baby would need to be fed? formula
3: yes definitely um that's a good point we do i mean WIC encourages families or, or parents to to breastfeed or to at least pump and offer that but not all situations um are conducive to that so i think mom baby or parent baby separation is is a huge key um or huge barrier as to why kind of that dyad um are not are not always is not always successful um, with with breastfeeding. Uh, so things like pumping at work, you know, there's a, a federal law, there's also state law uh, that allows for that time to be set aside. But I think some employers might still have some challenges in implementing that. So that's something um, that can be a barrier. And so then production or milk production is really based on supply and demand. And so if the milk's not being taken out, the supply is going to go down. And so there's not going to be enough milk to feed the baby. And so that's a huge I think that's probably a majority of the reason as to why um, moms do provide formula. The other, of course, is that there might be like medical issues um, that come into play either on the mom's side or the baby's side that necessitate uh, use of infant formula. There are still cases where we're really not able to find certain formulas. And it's more often with I think the more specialized formulas, which is scary since those infants or those children tend to have more health issues, you know, more medically fragile. And what we really want to emphasize with families is, you know, please talk to your provider so that there can be an alternative formula perhaps that, you know, can be recommended for this child. Uh, definitely do not over dilute, meaning like really watering down the formula to kind of stretch it out because that puts the baby or puts the child at risk of being malnourished, not getting enough nourishment. Um, you know, Don't make up home concocted formulas um, because again, it may not provide the sufficient nourishment for the child. And so definitely talk to your provider, talk to our offices so that we can find a solution um, and try to resolve and find something that can can really meet the baby's needs. And in certain cases, we've had some moms who were interested You know, they, they they're doing both. They're both when I say both, I mean, they're both nursing or expressing breast milk and they've been providing formula for. however long, and they've been interested in kind of increasing their breast milk supply. Um, So that's another thing that we're able to assist with as well. Uh, We loan out breast pumps um, and then we can, you know, we, we offer education about how to use them and how to kind of help to gradually increase the breast milk. It's not something that would be sudden, but we are not entirely sure either how long this shortage will last. The shortage with Abbott has put a stress as well on other formula, you know, the other pharmaceutical companies because not just, you know, WIC, but just the public in general or families are buying other brands. If they used to be buying, if they they used to use, you know, Similac, if they were using Similac and they can't find that, they're turning to other brands. And so the other brands are, are also being squeezed.
0: So it's not just a Similac shortage. It's also just formula shortage in general. That was HPR's Jason Ubi speaking with Lori Lynn Salamanca, public health nutritionist with the WIC Services Branch at the State Department of Health. We'll have a link to more information about the baby formula recall on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. It's now time for a reality check-in with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. Yesterday, the Honolulu City Council approved a measure to crack down on illegal short-term vacation rentals. The council voted 8-1 to to pass Bill 41, which now heads to the mayor's desk. Civil Beat covered the proceedings yesterday, and politics and opinion editor Chad Blair joins us now. Good morning, Chad. Uh, Good morning, Scott. I'm covering for Christina Jedra, who was so exhausted
4: by the the hearing yesterday that she asked me to fill in. I'm I'm, I'm teasing only slightly. As you know, this issue has been ongoing for quite a long time. And now we seem to have uh, moved into a new a new development with uh, the passage of Bill 41, which now heads to Mayor Rick Blangiardi for his likely signature. But uh,
0: thanks for having me on today. Absolutely. And totally understand how Christina feels. I've sat through those marathon <laughs> hearings before. so just, As have I. So to start with, can you review the top line highlights of what this bill in its final form does? I think the, the
4: most important takeaway with Bill 41 is that it requires that when you book these short-term rentals, it has to be for a minimum of 90 days, for three months. Uh, in most areas of Oahu, that currently is at 30 days. So that's a pretty big change from 30 days minimum to 90 days. And uh, there are some exceptions um, outside resort areas or, or near resort areas. You'd have to look at the fine print to to learn more about that. But that's the biggest uh, change in the, in the bill, hence the term <laughs> short-term rentals. This would... Uh, suggested before a longer term than the shorter term. There are some new restrictions and and fees and fines that are associated with Bill 41. Uh, Unregulated rentals, uh, they could not advertise their daily rates. That's something also that's in the bill. And what are known as non-conforming rental units that are in residential neighborhoods, you'd have to limit uh, the number of people staying there to four adults. So that's significant. There's also some requirements regarding off-street parking uh, spots uh, for each person who rents that in a residential area because that's also been a concern with cars, rental cars piling up on streets. So so those are some of the big uh, takeaways uh, from Bill 41, and, um, and we'll see whether this really solves the problem, which has been an ongoing, as we say,
0: phenomenon, particularly here on Oahu. Right, and and council members voted 8 to 1 to pass the bill, but it seems like there's still quite a bit of dissatisfaction with it, besides Andrea Tupola's no vote. Two voted with reservations, meaning they have serious concerns, and Carol Fukunaga and Calvin Say both proposed amendments that they eventually withdrew, and even Chair Tommy Waters, one of the bill's Mm. champions, says they can always amend it. So is it safe to say we've not heard the last of this issue?
4: Oh, I think that's that's probably accurate. It is not uncommon for a new law to go into effect. It doesn't quite fix things, and so lawmakers have to revisit. Uh, Carol Fukunaga, by the way, was particularly concerned about, well, it's just going to hurt some people that need these short-term rentals who are not necessarily tourists. And these types of individuals would would include surfers, people out here for surf contests, uh, medical patients, maybe somebody from a neighbor island who comes to Oahu for, for medical care, uh, health care workers. We saw the need for them to come from the mainland because of COVID and uh, also students uh, as well and, and military personnel. These are groups that are not traditionally considered tourists. And, and what's that going to mean to them if suddenly they're told you can't rent just for you know, 30 days, it has to be 90 days. I mean, that's going to be a big, big change. So that could be one example of an amendment uh, down the road, depending on what we see. I mean, I'm sure we're going to get a lot of feedback, assuming this bill becomes law, uh, and the council will certainly be open to revisiting it.
0: And Bill 41 was drawn up by the mayor's office, so it would seem logical that Mayor Blangiardi would have no hesitation in signing it. But the council did make some changes to it, such as bringing down the minimum time for leases on rentals from, I believe, 180 days to 90. Uh, That's right. Will the administration be happy with this final bill?
4: I think so. We we will see. It was the administration's idea. If the bill is signed into law, it takes effect six months from now. But as you know, there's some some twists there. Blangiardi's um, own deputy director of the Department of Planning and Permanent, uh, Dean Uchida, uh, was under fire because his wife works in the hotel industry and he had to recuse himself. But we'll see. Uh, I'm sure we're going to get a, a whole earful from what goes on there. If the bill is vetoed, One wonders whether there would be enough votes to sustain uh, an override. But uh, so far, the indications are that the mayor is likely to sign Bill 41 into law.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Chad, for filling us in on this. Hope you and your staff can get some rest after that meeting. (laughs) (laughs) Particularly Christina. Exactly. That was Civil Beat editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. To read Christina Jedra's full story, visit civilbeat.org.
2: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Aloha Care, a Hawaii health plan specializing in Medicaid health insurance. Committed to the health of Hawaii's communities. AlohaCare.org.
0: Bill Taylor is a former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. The Ukrainians are outraged. They are
4: furious, and they will fight harder than ever in, in order to win. They will win in the end.
3: We'll talk with him about how the United States' relationship with Ukraine is changing
0: due to the actions of both the current and previous presidential administrations. That's on the next On Point.
2: Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for HPR comes from Hotel Magic, presenting The Magical Mystery Show at the Fairmont Keolani in Wailea, Maui. Magicians perform illusions designed to blur the line between fantasy and reality. Tickets at MauiMagic.net.
0: America's best idea. That's been the unofficial slogan of our national parks since the seminal 2009 Ken Burns documentary brought the majestic landscapes directly to our homes. But this notion that the country's most beautiful places are preserved for everyone to enjoy overlooks a complicated history of imperialism, particularly of indigenous women. In order to bring this story to the forefront, the National Park Service teamed up with a group of researchers at the University of California at Davis, who combed through the archives to find the women at the center of national parks history. The Conversation's Savannah Harriman-Pote has more.
5: In early 2020, the National Park Service set out to commemorate the 100-year anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which granted women's suffrage in the United States. The part sent out a survey to see whether visitors wanted women's history to play a larger role at national sites. The results were a resounding yes.
6: People indicated that they wanted to know more about women's history, women's lives, women's politics in a more robust way.
5: That's University of California at Davis professor Lisa Matterson, who, along with fellow Davis historian Ellen Hardigan O'Connor, was tasked by the Parts Service with bringing women back into the narrative of national parts. Hardigan oconnor says the first step was challenging the notion that the 19th Amendment gave all women the right to vote.
7: It's popularly known as the Women's Rights Amendment, and it does remove sex as a bar to federal voting, but it left in place many other kinds of restrictions on many women's ability to vote. So women who are restricted by by race, by relationship uh, with men of particular ethnic and racial backgrounds. And it struck us as we were thinking about these Western and Pacific sites, which are sites of U.S. empire. and, And this has been an important move in history is recognizing the United States as an imperial power in the West and in the Pacific. So that empire, too, has this expansive quality, expanding U.S. territory. Again, often at the hands of or with the active participation of one group of women, white women in particular, at the expense of women of color and indigenous women. So that empire and the 19th Amendment had this this double edge that by focusing the stories of women, diverse groups of women, we could really explore that and kind of um, make a more thorough, full and complex history of the United States at the same time.
5: One example of white women working against indigenous rights that Matterson and Hargan O'Connor found involves none other than suffrage icon Susan B. Anthony. After the overthrow of the Kingdom of Hawaii in 1898, Anthony petitioned Congress to include more political rights for white women in Hawaii's territorial constitution at the expense of Native Hawaiian and immigrant men. Anthony told senators, quote, I think we are of as much importance as are the Filipinos, Puerto Ricans, Hawaiians, Cubans, and all the different sorts of men that you have before you. When you get those men, you have an ignorant and unlettered people who know nothing of our institutions.
6: For white women suffragists, empire, U.S. territorial expansion across the North American continent, overseas, to the Pacific, to the Caribbean, created moments after the end of Reconstruction to bring federal voting rights to Congress. Again, because there's conversations taking place about voting rights within these conquered territories, whether they will become a part of the United States, whether um, what would be the rights of conquered peoples of colonial subjects, Uh, and so this created uh, many opportunities for white women suffragists to talk about white women's rights and women's voting rights. And then if you look at the kind of other side, there were many women who did not want to be a part of the United States. And so when we think about the 19th Amendment, it's not just about becoming more deeply incorporated into the United States. There were indigenous women who, Resisted in becoming part of the United States. They didn't seek more political rights because they didn't want to be a part of the United States.
5: Hardigan O'Connor says that the national parks were one of the central stages where these political battles played out.
7: You know, national parks were created uh, in the 19th century with an idea of kind of conservation and control. So, ideas about preserving a so called wilderness. Uh, and bringing it under control of of whites of the U.S. government. And one of the things that we sought to do in selecting women for this project, in selecting women's lives to explore for this project, were to challenge the idea that these parks are located on wilderness sites, right? That one of the things we really wanted to to bring out is the use of these space and the creation of these landscapes by Indigenous women whose homelands they are. So thinking about um, a park uh, in Hawaii and thinking about, uh, for instance, the Hawaiian royal family and women of of, uh, Hawaiian royalty who spent the 18th and 19th century using these sites to consolidate their own power, to um, kind of maneuver within dynastic politics. Um, to uh, shore up alliances, often against the United States, but in other other times, you know, kind of leveraging the United States or Britain or other empires kind of against their own internal politics. So really reminding everyone and reasserting that these are places with long histories uh, and um, and the very land itself is shaped by these women, these people who... Who lived and worked, uh, and the land had deep meaning to them.
5: In addition to crafting an overall narrative of women's history, Maddison and Hargan O'Connor assembled a team of researchers to assemble short biographies of specific women who influenced the parks. Ellie Kaplan, a PhD student at Davis, focused on Geraldine Kanui Bell, the first Native Hawaiian woman to serve as a superintendent for the National Parks Service. Bell oversaw the parts at Pu'u'onua'o'honau now and Kaloko'honakahau on Hawaii Island. Kaplan says one of Bell's most important contributions was the repatriation of Ivi Kapuna, or ancestral bones, that the National Park Service had in their records.
8: The fact that the National Park Service had these ancestral bones uh, really speaks to this history of conquest, this history of empire that the National Park Service is tied up in. And then seeing Jerry Bell take leadership of these sites and having one of her earliest acts as superintendent be the repatriation, working with community members, working with the Hawaiian Burial Council in order to return these remains to descendants, to their communities, in a really culturally appropriate manner speaks to the way that Native Hawaiian women particularly took ownership and took control of these sites.
5: The research team also included the story of Olivia Robello Bretha, a Hansen's disease patient who spent almost seven decades at Kalaupapa on Molokai, building a community in exile.
8: So here was a site where people were meant to be forgotten. And instead, they built their own community. They had relationships with each other. They had active religious and social lives, economic lives. And um, having that then become a site within the National Park Service in the 1980s provided a continued place of community for people who had been confined there. So Bretha has this quote where she talks about, right, this place that was once a prison has now become a paradise. So thinking about this repurposing of sites to become places of empowerment.
5: The research team at UC Davis crafted over 60 biographies of women who shaped the course of national parks in the West and Pacific. Den O'Connor thinks that this project has captured the public's attention in part because they can connect with the women at the center of it.
7: You know, this was one of the only projects I've worked on that I have a prayer of my mother being interested. I mean, she's interested. She's my mother. She's interested in all of these things. But you know, I, I showed her this, and she said, "Oh, I'm working my way through the biographies," and she, you know, it was. It could, she could immediately relate to the personal stories.
5: But Materson says that these women shouldn't have had to wait a hundred years to have their stories told. And to create a better picture of women's history, we should start with the women in our own lives. We
6: do sincerely hope that this is a source of also inspiration. I mean, to for people to turn to their family, to turn to their mothers, their grandmothers, their kin, and to do oral history
5: interviews and ask about their lives and to document those lives. And for Hargan O'Connor, the message of this project boils down to one key idea.
7: Women as protagonists in history, essentially, uh, and women as protagonists who have as much multiplicity and complexity as male protagonists in history.
0: That was UC Davis historians Ellen Hardigan oconnor and Lisa Matterson, along with Ph.D. student Ellie Kaplan. They were speaking with The Conversation Savannah, Haram, and Pote about their autobiographical series on women in our national park system. To find out more about their work, check out the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. And we were testing your knowledge of Hawaii Volcanoes National Park for today's backyard quiz. We wanted to know the name of the coastal landmark at the end of Chain of Craters Road. It's a stark lava rock formation about 90 feet high extending from the steep sea cliffs into the Pacific Ocean. It was cut into the cliff of an ancient lava flow from approximately 550 years ago due to the strong waves that strike the coastline and differential erosion, a term referring to the difference in the hardness of various layers of lava. But it won't be around forever. Scientists believe the beautiful formation has a limited lifespan, predicting it will eventually crumble into the sea. If you had a chance to make it down to the Hawaii Volcanoes National Park coastline, then you know we're talking about the Hole Sea Arch, the answer to today's backyard quiz. The basalt formation was named after the hole, a small endemic plant in the milkweed family that grows on the slopes of Kilauea. And we do have a winner of our backyard quiz. Bobby from Volcano called us, was the first caller with the correct answer. Congratulations, Bobby, you will be receiving our tote bag. And that's today's quiz. If you have one to share, write to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org.
2: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Queen's Health Systems, committed to caring for the community at its hospitals and clinics. Learn more at queens.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists.
1: Hello. I'm Brooke Williams, author of Mary Jane Wilde, Two Walks and a Rant. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about inner and outer wilderness.
2: Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting a site-specific installation by social practice artist Theaster Gates as part of Hawaii Triennial 2022. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org.
0: University of Hawaii women's basketball player Amy Atwell was drafted by the Women's National Basketball Association's Los Angeles Sparks earlier this week. She's the reigning Big West Conference Player of the Year, the school's three-point record holder, and only the second Rainbow Wahine drafted by a WNBA team in the league's 26-year history. The Conversations Russell Subiono sat down with Atwell to talk about her journey to our islands and the secret behind her three-point proficiency. On the attack, Tom's couldn't can it. Emairo takes up top triple. Atwell knocked it down. we got to get some offensive flow going. Atwell will deliver. Atwell, five to shoot. Atwell across the lane. Atwell for the lead.
9: I know that you're the Rainbow Wahine's three-point record holder. How did you become so proficient at the long-range shot?
10: Well, it was probably... Halfway through high school, I was very, like, right-hand drive heavy, and that was kind of my go-to. And it was one of my coaches at the time was, like, if you want to take your game to the next level, you're going to need to develop at least a decent outside shot. So then it was actually my mom that took me down to the local high school every Saturday and would go to the court for, like, an hour, and she would just rebound me, and I'd just shoot, like, hundreds of threes. And then I kind of developed it from there, and then when I had all my knee injuries, that's all I could do for a while. All I could do was spot shooting, no jumping, no running, no cutting or anything like that. So I was just got my form down to a tee and was just in the gym every day shooting and getting shots up. So that's kind of how it's progressed and perfected over the years.
9: I've read a lot of books where they say that you have to put in 10 years or 10,000 hours to become a master at anything. Is that about the as much time as you put in on, on getting your three-point shot down?
10: Oh, I would have no idea how much work I've put in at this point. I mean, yeah, it probably has been yeah. 10 years by now. I think I've been playing basketball for almost 15, 16 years. So since I was like, I think seven or eight, I started. So I, yeah, it's been a fair time.
9: <laughs> I know you're originally from Australia. You're a six yeah. foot forward. When you were introduced to basketball, was it that thing where you were a tall person and someone just assumed that you would enjoy the game? Or how did you get introduced to basketball?
10: Actually, a couple of my cousins played, so I was one of those kids that kind of played a lot of sports, and I just tried everything. So I was playing a lot of different sports at the time. Two of my older cousins were actually playing basketball, and my dad kind of came home one day and was like, well, you want to give basketball a shot? And I was like, yeah, sure. And I went down to the same club as my cousins and jumped on a club team there and kind of never turned back after that.
9: Oh, wow. So your your dad kind of saw a little bit of a spark in you at that age and, and thought it might be something that you'd be good at.
10: Yeah, I hmm. guess. <laughs>
9: And what were some of the reasons that led you to attend the University of Hawaii? Did it have to do with the proximity to Australia or was there something else that you liked about the school?
10: Uh, yeah, I mean, that was definitely helped that it was a bit closer than the rest of the mainland. But on my visit, I kind of just fell in love with everything. I The first time I walked into Stan Sheriff's Centre, I was like, oh, wow, like, this is where I'm potentially going to be playing. And the arena was beautiful and all the facilities were amazing. And then definitely the coaching stuff. Coach B was just a super down-to-earth and relatable coach. And I found myself having a media relationship with her. And then uh, this is coach, Alex Delaney, and who has been here still was the one that was actually recruiting me and I had a pretty good relationship with him and I just felt super comfortable and kind of loved everything.
9: That's good to hear that you connected with the people and and the lifestyle here and in your time playing for UH what's your favorite local thing or local place to eat?
10: Definitely poker. It took me a couple years to kind of get used to the texture and the taste but I love it now. My go-to is actually off the hookup in Manoa. The spicy ahi there is to die for. <laughs> That's probably one of the biggest things I'm going to miss when I leave.
9: Whenever someone moves so far away from home, they encounter challenges, making new friends, learning a new culture. I know that you sat out your freshman year while recovering from injuries. How did finding a way to adapt and overcome those early challenges, how did that help you elevate your game during your five years playing for UH?
10: Oh, yeah, it definitely kind of laid the foundation And for me my first year here and not being able to play but kind of soaking in everything else off the court and kind of getting used to the routine and what it would be like. I think I almost kind of had an advantage sitting out my first year because I didn't have the pressures of performing on the court and I got to just kind of come over here, which at first did suck, not being able to play, but looking back on it, I'm kind of grateful that I had that year to kind of figure out the system, make new friends and all that kind of stuff without having the pressures of performing on court and stuff like that. But it definitely kind of laid the foundation for my six years here and allowed me to be as successful as I was.
9: When you did have to sit out your freshman year, were you bummed a little bit, or did you feel like as long as you can make it through that and and keep working, that that you'll get to the place that you wanted to be on the team?
10: I was definitely bummed because um, obviously I was coming. I came over here to play basketball. Like that was the reason I committed here, and the reason I was coming to the US was to play basketball and develop my game, and then having to come over here and not being able to play my first year was definitely a um, kind of a shock and I uh, was definitely bummed out about it. But like I said, kind of looking back on it, I'm actually kind of grateful it worked out that way.
9: You were drafted by the Los Angeles Sparks, one of the three original WNBA teams from that first season in 1997. And I think the league is celebrating, I think it's 26th year. It's always been around since you've been alive playing professionally when did that become a possibility for you
10: um i mean i think ever since i was pretty young and i started playing and then i made my first um like club team back home i was kind of i always knew i could be pretty good at it and i wanted to see how far i could go with it um and then it was kind of through high school when i was thinking about coming to college i was like yeah okay like my like i want i want to go play professionally and see where i can take this i want to go play college and then hopefully come back home after I'm done playing college and play professionally in Australia and kind of doors have just opened up from there. So I've kind of known for a while that I did want to pursue a professional career after college, but I just didn't know where or when.
9: You were named Big West Conference Player of the Year. Was there a moment where you thought to yourself that, hey, I, I might get drafted? Was Was there a point where you thought that?
10: It wasn't actually until after the season was done. I think um, that Baylor game when I kind of, performed like that against such right. a good opponent on, on a national stage like that definitely gave me some exposure. And it was kind of after that game and after the season, everything was settling down. And I was getting in touch with some agents. It was like, okay, this this might be a possibility. I might try, like, I have the opportunity to potentially get drafted or sign a tra- training camp contract. And then it was all about just trying to find the right agent and like and going through those paths. But it actually wasn't until after season where I was like, okay, like this might be a possibility.
9: What do you look forward to the most – when training cap begins, when the season begins?
10: Just the experience, I think. Being able to be around such professionals like that, like I'm going to be in a couple of days, um, and just kind of soak all that in, how they how they do everything, how they work out, how they look after their bodies and all that kind of stuff, and just add knowledge to my game. That's I think that's what I'm most um, excited about.
9: You were the second Rainbow Wahine to be drafted to the WNBA. You were named Big West Conference Player of the Year. You are the three-point record holder for the women's team. How would you like to be remembered by the people of Hawaii and UH fans?
10: Yeah, I mean, obviously, all that on the stuff, on the court stuff is great, but I think I just want to be remembered as who I am off the court. Um, always happy, always have the right attitude, always working hard, um, and always kind of a pleasure to be around. I've I've been fortunate enough to come across some great people in my six years here, um, and I just hope to maintain those relationships. Um, wherever i go next and just yeah hopefully leave a mic off the court as well
9: thank you so much for taking the time to hang out and talk story
0: with me today
10: yeah no worries thank you so much for having me on
0: that was uh women's basketball player amy atwell talking with hpr's russell subiono earlier this week atwell became the second rainbow wahine ever drafted by a wnba team And that's it for today's conversation for Thursday, April 14. Coming up tomorrow, we share a Pau Hana Hana Ho show about local libations and other drinks to celebrate the end of the work week. Go Friday. In the meantime, give us some feedback. Got questions about anything you may have heard on our air? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at org and you can connect with us on Facebook, too. I'm Scott Kim. Thanks for listening. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.